1 John 5, 14 to 21. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mel. Man, if only last week I would have looked ahead when I was complaining about trying to figure out what the water and the blood was. Little did I know that the sin that leads to death was in the next text. So we're going to do our best to unravel that this morning. Um, but kids that are in here today with us, this might be one of those sermons that would be really good to draw a picture in, okay? Uh, I'm going to have some ideas that help us make sense or some pictures, some word pictures that help us make sense of this. So if you want to draw a picture while I'm talking today, it may help you stay engaged. And then if it's like a picture you're proud of, come show it to me afterwards. I'd love to see it, even if you're not proud of it. Um, I'm sure I'll be proud of it, and I'm sure your parents will too. So come show me afterwards. Well, I was just talking to my parents the day before yesterday, and they let me know that they are leaving on a Caribbean cruise. Lucky them. Have you seen these ships before, especially these Royal Caribbean ships? This is the new, a picture of the newest one in their fleet, and it's ridiculous. Um, while you're on board, enjoying one of the seven luxurious swimming pools or a literal water park in the ocean, a floating water park in the ocean, or a deep water diving show, or ice skating rinks, or mini golf, or a shopping mall in the ocean, or zip lining, or one of a million other amenities, you probably wouldn't even realize it. But at the very bottom of these gigantic ships, underneath the water, there's something called a ballast chamber. You never see it while you're tubing the lazy river, but it is there and it saves the lives of everyone on board. The ballast chamber is filled with a significant amount of water, a significant weight of water, so that the ship can have stability when the most forceful winds and waves and currents are coming at it. Now, the ballast, like I said, is invisible to everyone that is outside of the ship or on the ship. Uh, the ballast is all beneath the murky waters, but it is always there, stabilizing the ship. And just as a a warning, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but in the ballast chamber, the, the flow of water goes in the opposite direction of the waves. And that's how it is, that, in that is its actual value. It's its particular value as it counterbalances the waves that are coming at the ship. Uh, and so this letter from John, and really the whole of the scriptures, 
are a counterbalance to the world's waves when they come at us. Scripture's stabilizing truths will consistently be moving in the opposite direction of the world. That's why we have to pour and then keep on pouring the ballast of the truth of the Scriptures into our hearts. So John's letter here is meant to be a ballast for your faith, stabilizing you in your beliefs that Jesus is who he says he is, and that if you have faith in the true Jesus revealed in the Scriptures, you are who God says you are, his kid. So why would we need this ballast to be poured into that chamber in our hearts? Well, look around. The waves, there are waves everywhere that are threatening to sink our gospel ships. As Christians, you know this to be true, we are the target of many insults in our world. The mockery of the media, maybe some co-workers of yours, this ballast right here will help us survive that onslaught. Or we have grievous things happening all around us. I, I left our community group this last Tuesday just feeling so heavy. Every single family member represented in our group was faced with something really challenging. And many times it was grievous things happening in their immediate family. This ballast will help us survive that grief. We probably all have some friends, at least some uh, friends, at least some friends leaving the faith. Uh, this ballast will help us survive that pain and confusion as they turn their backs on Jesus. And remember, this is exactly what was happening in John's church. A group of people had left the church and they were rejecting the true Jesus. And John was left to pick up the pieces and to right the ship for all the people that were remaining in the church. That's why he says in Chapter 5, verse 13, you can see it right there in the chapter that we're in. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's stabilizing them. He's pouring water down into the ballast of their hearts to stabilize them. So as we wrap this letter together today, let's pour some weight into the bottom of our hearts so that when the winds of whatever blow, we are not blown over. A few months ago, when we started our study through this letter, I, I put this picture up on screen, and I want to return to it as we close out our time together. This is just the right side of the painting. I haven't shown you the left side yet. This is probably the most famous picture that uh, is still around today of Martin Luther. Uh, he was a German pastor in the 1500s. He kind of struck that match that was the Reformation, if you've heard of that period uh, in history. It was painted by a friend of his, and it's the one by which we know Luther's face the best these days, more than 500 years after it was painted. Well, the painting, you can tell, is set in like this large stone room, stone church. At the one end that you can see, Luther stands high up in the pulpit, looking straight ahead with one hand on the Bible and the other, his face looking straight ahead and his finger pointing straight ahead as well. But at the other end of the room that you can't see in this part uh, was his congregation in Wittenberg, or Wittenberg, if you want to say it right, I guess. They are listening to Luther's preaching, and they're looking ahead too. But when I show you the middle of the painting here in just a second, I think you'll, uh, well, you will find that they are not looking at Luther like you might think. So you've seen the right side, now you're seeing the left side. You don't know what's in the middle. And Luther isn't pointing at the congregation like you might think either, pointing at you guys. You see, in the space between Luther and the congregation stands Jesus' cross. And so here's the whole thing together. I think this 
painting demonstrates what John has been doing through this letter. Pointing to Christ and him crucified and defending his work, defending his identity, defending his lordship over our lives. And this is honestly what we hope is a picture of what we do in the pulpit every single Sunday. Just weak men pointing to the strong Christ. That's what we want to be the story of our church. The people leaving John's church were distorting the truth about Jesus. So what does John do in response? John points to the real Jesus and says, no, 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 let me tell you. I was there. I saw him. This is the actual Jesus here that I'm telling you about in this letter. This is the Jesus that I heard and that I saw and that I touched with my own hands. He's like, guys, trust me. I was there. I saw him get up from the dead. I saw the miracles that he did. It's really him, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Don't turn your backs on him. And so this is the context for where John is headed today as he closes out this letter. Once again, pouring the glorious doctrine of King Jesus into the ballast chamber of our hearts. Apparently for John, our souls find stabilizing ballast in the wake of confusion and grief by returning to something that we know. From verses 13 to 21, there are seven instances of the word know. You can look at them. Verse 13, that we may know. Verse 15, if we know that he hears us whenever we ask, we know. Verse 18, we know. Verse 19, we know. Verse 20, we know that we may know. Clearly, this concept of knowing is really important for John to sign off with his readers with. So our big idea this morning Big idea is kind of something that like encapsulates this whole final section of First John. Hopefully it's portable and you can take it with you out of this place today. It's going to be a variation on an old quip, but it's still true. It's this. No Jesus, no life. No Jesus, no life. If we know these things, it will be a stabilizing factor for our lives. So there are four things we'll see today. Knowing Jesus mean, means God's means God hears us, means God sanctifies us, means God protects us, means God satisfies us. God hears, sanctifies, protects, and satisfies us, and these things will stabilize our faith. So number one this morning, knowing Jesus means God hears us. Something that can stabilize us is confidently knowing that God hears and grants the prayers of his saints. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, before we get all excited about the new Corvette in the driveway, just take note that John immediately puts like a conditionality on this, a conditional clause on these prayers. And the condition is five words. It's this, anything according to his will. Anything according to his will. So I suppose if you ask for a Corvette, and it is according to his will, you'll get it. You can ask for that on my behalf if you'd like. Um, John tells us that God will hear, uh, hear us, not to make us presumptuous, but to fuel our confidence. Prayer, prayer is not a convenient tool for us imposing our will on God or for bending his will toward ours. It's a way of us subordinating our will to God's will. It is in prayer that we seek God's will and then we align ourselves with it. Man, some of us are haunted by this question. What is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? 
We'd love to have an answer, a clear answer on who we should marry, which job we should take, where we should go to church, and where we should live. And we fear that, you know, if we make the wrong choice, we'll be out of the center of God's will, and that makes us a little queasy, a little anxious. We'll miss God's best for us. But is this the way God works? I don't think so. I don't think so. God's will is not some secret thing that we have to, like, discover and uncover. He's not sneaky. The Father delights in giving good gifts to his kids. And clearly, he reveals his will for our lives. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So let me ask you, who are you becoming by the things that you are praying? If God's will for you is your sanctification, who are you becoming by the things that you are praying? This here is sort of like a throttle, I think, on our prayer life. It keeps us from like rogue, purely self-serving prayers. How do we know what God's will is? How will we know what needs to be sanctified or purified in our lives? This book, this book, the better you know this book, the better and more confidently you will pray. The better you know this book, the better and more confidently you can pray. That's what verse 14 says, right? Right? Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So our confidence in prayer is directly tied to our knowledge of God's word. Confidence comes when we pray according to his will. Have you ever gone bowling with those bumpers? Is Greg here? I know Greg Mitchell. Oh, he's downstairs. All right. Um, he told us all about bowling last week. Bowling with bumpers is the way to go, man. Uh, keeps the ball placement good uh, and your score high. Um, if you want the highest return on investment of your prayers, pray with the bumpers that John gives you in this text. God's will bumpers. Do you know what will bring you the most joy in your life? The glory of God experienced in you by you, and then through others as well. The glory of God, that has to be the target of your prayers. And I'm going to borrow a well-known phrase here from Pastor John Piper that I think will help us. He says this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The reason our joy is so closely attached to God's glory is because our deepest longings, that part of your heart that no one else can get to, that part can only be satisfied by God in the face of Jesus Christ. So truly, praying with these bumpers in mind should cause us to pray things like, God, give me the job that'll keep me most satisfied in you, not necessarily make me the wealthiest that I could be. Give me friends that'll keep me satisfied in you. Put me in a neighborhood that'll increase my joy in you. But more often than not, if you're anything like me, we pray for what would create the most pleasure for us. And often those are wrong requests. It's not bad to pray those things. But they're like the appetizers rather than the actual meal. Have you ever been to a really good restaurant and wasted all of your stomach space on the appetizer and the bread? I have. I think I've told you before about my love and affinity for Bloomin' Onions. I have a deep love and affinity for Bloomin' Onions. Um, and these things are my nemesis when it comes to filling up before the good stuff gets there. Um, does it get any better in the appetizer world? The fried, layered onion with the spicy, succulent sauce? Some of you need to make plans to go to the new 
Outback today in Horsham for lunch. Even better, though, even better than enjoying the succulent blooming onion is enjoying what follows after Outback's iconic prime rib. I know some of you snake, snake snobs, steak snobs, and here like, Outback steak, what's wrong with you? But their prime rib is special. Maybe not their steaks, but their prime rib. Anyway, here's the problem with the blooming onion when you're at Outback. It's almost too good. I can't tell you how many times I've thought, oh man, what's the point of them even bringing the prime rib right now? I'm stuffed. You eat like the brown bread and you eat the, 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 the blooming onion and you don't, even want, you don't even want the prime rib. The appetizer, as amazing as it is, tends to ruin an even greater component of the meal, the medium rare prime rib. Wasting stomach space on a blooming onion rather than waiting for the prime rib is like merely praying for pleasure rather than praying for God's will. There is a place for pleasure, but it's not like what the main event of your prayers should be. God's sanctifying will is the prime rib of your prayers. I know I've read this quote from C.S. Lewis before, but I think it's just so relevant here. Here's what he says. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think this is true for our prayer lives. We are far too easily pleased, and our prayers reflect it. There is infinite joy at the feet of the Father. So John Stott says, every true prayer is a variation on one theme. Your will be done. Some of us are afraid of that your will be done peace. It scares us to death to pray that. But it is there where we as human beings find our greatest joy and purpose and pleasure. Jesus, at the foot of the cross, showed us what this looked like with five simple words. Not my will, but yours. Jesus is showing us the kind of prayer that we can pray confidently. Instead of trusting what he, Jesus, wanted, he was actively putting his trust in the Father's wisdom. And I think this is so instructive for you and me. Jesus' words here should be the theme of our prayers, of our days, our hours, of our moments. Not my will, but yours. Not my wisdom prevailing, God, but your wisdom prevailing. The confidence here is that when we pray like this, the Father hears us like a daddy hears his kids. One pastor said, if we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what God gives. Or to put it another way, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. Thousands of years from now, when we know exactly what God knows, we will never accuse him of anything except for having always been faithful, even though in the moment on the ground right now, it can feel confusing. These things are the things that we should pour into the ballast chambers of our hearts. So this first ballast pour is knowing that God hears us and will answer our prayers according to his will. So let this truth stabilize you and allow your confidence to swell in your place in God's family. The Father hears you like I hear my kids and want to please them and give them what they ask for. So next here, John puts some practical boots on the ground for something to pray for in line with what we've already talked about. 
sanctification. So number two, knowing Jesus means God sanctifies us. Knowing Jesus means God sanctifies us. So first I want to deal with the controversy here in verses 16 and 17. Very briefly, very briefly before we get to the application, we could legit spend hours and hours and hours on 16 and 17. Uh, We'd scratch our heads all morning together. This morning, I'm not going to tell you all the things it could mean. There are a bunch of things it could mean. I'm just going to tell you the thing that I think it means and what a majority of the students of the scriptures that I read, at least this last week, think it means. I offer my perspective with great humility because it's a really tough section. With the help of a whole bunch of scholars, I put this table together to try to help us make sense of this. Um, Hopefully, the, the print is large enough for you to be able to see. Maybe I need to duck like this so you can see in the middle. But. So here, let me read the text for us again, verses 16 and 17. You can look down at the scriptures. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. So let's just briefly work our way through this table, okay? So you can see the challenges column on the left. The first challenge to solve is this. Identify who the people are that are doing the sinning. So next column over. There is a sin that doesn't lead to death. So here's the question. Who is the brother that commits the sin that doesn't lead to death? Answer, a believer. Who is, the sin that does, who is doing the sinning that does lead to death? Uh, answer, an unbeliever. Move that down to the next uh, row. Identify what life is in this text and what death is in this text. What is the life that God will give to those who commit sins not leading to death? Eternal life. What is the death that God will give those who commit sins that do lead to death? Eternal death under God's wrath. Third challenge, identify the sin. What is the sin that does not lead to death? I think it's any sin a believer might commit. Any number of a million sins that you or I would commit. What is the sin that uh, that does lead to death? I think it is any sin an unbeliever may commit, especially abandoning the faith that you once embraced. Remember the context that John is writing into here. It's a church who has experienced a number of people who look like legit believers. On the outside, they look like the real thing. But they have now spurned the true Jesus and are accusing him of either being less than human or less than God or both. Less than, Jesus was less than human, less than God, or he was less than both. This is an especially dangerous place to be. Since they rejected the Son, they had forfeited eternal life. I, I just want you to note, though, quickly here, the very specific wording that John uses. He does not say that this sin causes death. He says it leads to death. It doesn't, so I just say that to say it doesn't necessarily mean that all those who were once in the faith but have left the faith have absolutely no hope. That's not what is being taught here. John Calvin said this. He said, We ought not rationally to conclude that anyone has brought on themselves the judgment of eternal death. On the contrary, love should dispose us to hope well. Final challenge, identify how to pray. How do you pray for the brother committing it? Well, John says that God would enable them uh, enable the believer to repent and enjoy eternal, and so enjoy eternal life. And then what does John say? Why does John say that we don't need to pray for the sinner committing the sin that does lead to death? I don't think that's John's main point here. 
John doesn't ever forbid us to pray for such sinners, but believers cannot pray for them with the same level of confidence as for believers who commit a sin not leading to death. So John's point isn't so much don't pray for them as it is I'm not even talking about that right now. I'm talking about this other category. All right? Told you it was going to be brief. We could spend hours on that. Uh, But that's my take on what's happening there. To summarize, true believers can fall into sin. Duh. All right? You have probably this morning, and so have I. But their spiritual death and salvation are not at stake because Jesus, the true Jesus that John is identifying for us here, the true Jesus is our advocate and our atonement. Nothing can break his promise for true believers who continue to hold to the true Christ. Remember this back from chapter 2? And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. That is our destiny for all the, uh, those of us who hold to the true Christ. God ain't breaking his promise to you, all right? The reality, though, is that Christians do sin, but that we must not keep on sinning. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. The idea is that we will not keep on sinning without repentance. Repentance is like this. You're facing your sin, and then you turn your back on your sin, and you face Jesus. That's what the Christian life is. But sinners that become complacent with their sin and just kind of keep walking this way without ever repenting, sinners that do this are in serious jeopardy of sinning in a way that leads them to death. That's John's underlying point here. This is a difference that I always try to point out to my kids. Do I sin less than them? Hopefully, to some degree. But that's really not the major difference between me and my kids, unfortunately. Sad to say that uh, as a pastor. But the primary difference between me and them isn't marked by sinning less, though I hope I do, but by turning from my sin to Jesus more quickly and more often. Christians should be doing this all the time. Turning from their sin more quickly and more often. Sinclair Ferguson teases this out really well. He says, the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. You ever heard somebody say, well, I repented 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and it's done and dusted? Nobody's real clear on what Ferguson means by done and dusted. He's from Ireland, so give him some slack here. Scotland or Ireland? Scotland, sorry. Um, Said, no, it's not done and dusted for Jesus. Repentance is the whole of the Christian life. This transformation, this newness, this difference that is the Christian life takes place only when we find ourselves bowing down to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ through routine repentance. And there is a tool here that I think will help us, aid us in in this pursuit of not being marked by sin. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give that sinner, that person sinning life. I think this means that there are sins we sin because prayers weren't prayed. There are sins that I sin and that you sin because the rest of us weren't praying for each other in that sin. So if you want to know one thing that you can pray for confidently, that you can pray that is smack dab in the middle of God's will, it is praying for the sins that you see in each other, you see in me. So this is a pretty simple formula for us this morning. Every member of this church sins. <laughs> Every member of this church sees other members sin. Therefore, 
Everyone should be praying for other members and be, and be prayed for by other members. Again, like last week, I submit that your membership directories are not fodder for your fire pits, all right? They are tools that will help each other sin less and receive eternal life. Let me give you one example that just came to mind. I was hanging out with Steve and Jane Quigley yesterday, and he brought up to me five or six people that he had been flipping through his membership directory and seen people in there that he hadn't seen in this place, and he called them, and he texted them and said, hey, brother, hey, sister, where are you at? That's what those things are for. And then when we give you the updated version, throw them in the fire pit, okay? Did you know that your prayers could be the means to my eternal life? Look at 16 again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he should ask, and then God will give him life. There are sins we sin because prayers weren't prayed. Now, none of us get to blame others for the sins that we sin. I can't blame you for what I have done because you haven't prayed enough for me. My sin is on me. Your sin is on you. But we should really take this to heart, church. I desperately need you to pray for me. Through your prayers, God will grant me the ability to keep on repenting and keep on holding to eternal life. And the same is true for each of us. Did you ever wonder what those lines were for next to my face in the membership directory? It's not just for like an upcoming surgery or a long trip that I'm taking. Man, use those lines to list my sins, all right? Right next to my face. Pray that God would help me to keep on repenting. If you need a list, a bullet-pointed list, see me afterwards and I'll, I'll let you know all my sins. You can put them right next to my face, okay? I got a bunch just off the top of my head. I know many of you do pray for me and for our pastors. And all I can think is how many dumb and sinful things have I been protected from through your prayers? Keep on praying. And let me say this too, just very transparently. I know some of you we're disappointed that the pastoral team didn't bring some of the hardships that we've been through in recent months. I know that you were disappointed that we didn't bring them to you sooner. And I want you to know that you're right. We should have. I'm still working out what that would have actually looked like, but we should have found a way, and I commit to doing that in the future. The, day, the, the way we deal with sin in the church is not to chatter. It is not to process. It is not to gossip. The way we deal with sin in the church is to pray. I'll wrap this point up with a very powerful word from Charles Spurgeon. He says, might not we win more victories if we more consistently use this weapon of prayer? All hell is vanquished when the believer bows his knee in persevering supplication. Beloved, let us pray. We cannot all argue, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevalent in prayer. I would sooner see you eloquent with God than with men. Oof. Prayer links us with the eternal, the omnipotent, and the infinite, and hence it is our chief resort. May this be our story as a praying church, Trinity. Knowing Jesus means God hears us, Knowing Jesus means God sanctifies us through the prayers of his people. Next, we're pouring into the ballast chamber. Knowing Jesus means God protects us. Look at the second half of verse 18. He who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. 
So here's another ballast port to stabilize all of us who hold to the true Christ. Jesus Christ protects you, and Satan can't touch you. Jesus Christ protects you, and Satan can't touch you. He who was born of God there, in verse 18, is a reference to Jesus himself. Jesus, God of very God, protects his people. We do not keep ourselves. Jesus keeps us. And because of this, we can know that we are safe even though the world is a slave. We are safe even though the world is a slave. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power. They are slaves to the evil one. But not us. Not us. Satan may assault us, but he cannot seize us. He may grab at us, but he cannot lay hold of us. And do you want to know why? Look at verse 20. We are in him who is true. We are in Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. If Satan can't grab Jesus by the collar and chuck him into hell, he can't do that to us either. Because we are in Christ. We are in the fortress that is Jesus. We cannot be reached by Satan's hands. But one way we keep ourselves unreachable for each other is through prayer for each other. Prayer is a real tool in this fight. So keep on doing it, praying for one another. Now listen, we can be taunted by Satan. We can be seduced. We can be tempted. But we cannot, in the end, be touched in any meaningful, eternal way. Satan tempts us with friends that fall away. With doubts. He tempts us with doubts because of our griefs, with idolatry, with allurements, with whatever for you. But the truth is that the power and presence of Jesus protects us. Here's how one commentator explained this. His name is Gary Burge. He said, The world is not under, the siege, under siege by Satan. It hardly struggles against him at all. Christians reside in the rival camp to Satan, but our security is assured because Jesus resides there with us. The world is used to Satan's embrace, but Christians cannot be held by him because we're doing this. We're repenting. The Christian life is just the repenting life. That's all that it is. John wants you to know that as you fight your flesh, as you war against the impulses that are calling on you to relent on your faith, as you see your friends walk away like the people in John's church were observing, he wants you to know that Jesus will fight with you and fight for you. Just keep walking with him. Just keep walking with him. Keep repenting, keep believing, keep praying. And listen, if you do not think of yourself in the camp of Christianity this morning, I just want to put a little pebble in your shoe to cause you a little bit of discomfort or a little bit of a question mark maybe for you. The question isn't whether you're going to believe, but who. It's not merely about what to believe, but who to entrust yourself to. Do you really want to trust yourself? Do you really think humanity is our best bet? Do we really think that we are the answer to our problems? We who have generated all of our problems. I would submit that we are not our own best bet. That God has entered time and space in the person and work of Jesus Christ and paved the way back to fellowship with him. There is only one who can protect you from the just wrath of God. And that's Jesus. You need him to stand in your place, to absorb God's wrath in your place. 
You need him so bad, and so do I. If you've got questions about what that looks like or what that means, it would be a joy and a privilege to speak with you afterwards. Jesus is the only hope. Our ballast chambers are filling. God hears us, he sanctifies us, he protects us, and then finally today, knowing Jesus means God satisfies us. John closes his letter in what, at least to me, felt like a weird way to close his letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now that word, idols, might conjure up images of primitive people bowing down before statues in your mind. But that's not what John is referring to here. John's calling us to guard ourselves from God's substitutes. Here's how one theologian describes what idolatry looks like for us in the 21st century. He says, An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Maybe for some of us in here, we idolize comfort so we don't obey Jesus. We idolize well-behaved kids in public, and when we don't get that, we lose our minds. Maybe you idolize a growing portfolio or a growing church, whatever it might be that satisfies you more than God himself. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. So John's just written a whole letter pointing to the only one that can save and satisfy. But he knows that our hearts are fickle. So he says, don't follow after idols. He reminds them as he closes, look, Jesus is it, y'all. I know your friends are leaving the church, leaving the faith, but don't think that getting them back or joining them can satisfy. They can't. Only Jesus satisfies. Don't substitute anything for him. Ice chips were the one thing that I did right when my first daughter, Eden, was born. You just got a dollar, all right? If there are right words for comfort during childbirth, I do not know them, nor have I ever discovered them. Um, if there are correct physical touches, I never discovered the correct method of a physical touch to soothe the issue. <laughs> but for whatever reason, when my words and my touches weren't enough, frozen, frozen droplets of water were. Ice chips were what she wanted, and ice chips she was granted. Um, throughout the entire ordeal, I delivered those ice chips like a boss, right into her mouth, one after another. Giving birth is brutally hard, so I've heard. It's painful, it's messy, it's exhausting, but, but all along the way, as the pain increases and the tears flow, the prospect of the emergence of that child is what rivets the woman to that task at hand. I can endure this for a little while, knowing what I get to hold after this whole thing. Brief pain yields to pure joy, making that brief pain worth every second. The moment Miriam's eyes focused in on little Eden, the pain and the exhaustion, though not removed, were somehow like transformed. Pain somehow transformed into joy. 
this was so hard, but look, I get this kid, and she's beautiful. You can see it on a mom's face, too. You've probably seen the pictures all over Facebook right after birth. You've got tear-streaked cheeks, absolute exhaustion, matted hair, sweaty brows, utter weariness, and yet, shining through that miserable facade is an expression of pure joy. As we close this letter, John would want to remind us to interpret the difficulties of this day by keeping an eye on the last day. Keeping an eye on the last day creates urgency for those of us who are a little bit indifferent about our walk with Jesus. It dispels fear. The last day dispels fear for the believer. And it it fuels spiritual energy for us to keep on going, one step after another. This is why he told us back in chapter 2 that this is the last hour. There is urgency, so don't shrug off your need for repentance for another day. Don't wait to turn your back on that idol that the Holy Spirit revealed to you today in your heart. The realization that we are indeed in the last hour ought to provide a sense of urgency. In the end, does any of this really matter? Does any of this really matter? When we have kids to raise, bills to pay, lawns to mow, sure why I brought up lawns to mow in January, but anyway, it absolutely matters. If you know Jesus, you'll know life. But know Jesus, know life. Look look at verse 11 and 12 again. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Eternal life in God's presence for true believers. Eternal death under God's wrath for all the posers. As we wrap up here, I'd like for us to take, a, to take notice that the individuals in Luther's congregation have a story to tell. There's something interesting if you look closely at the facial expressions. Not all the faces are looking at the cross. There are a few people who are deliberately looking away. Luther's preaching turns the eyes of most people in the crowd toward the cross, but there are some who are distracted and looking elsewhere. Maybe they're too convicted by Luther's preaching. Maybe they're failing to look to the cross for grace. Instead, they look away, trying to find something to distract them from their guilt. One lady, if you can find her, seems oblivious as to what's going on, apparently more interested in looking out at us Um, rather than looking at the cross. She is missing the glory of what is happening right in front of her. Christ crucified for her sin. Maybe she's at church just to see and be seen rather than to hear God's word and his gospel. Listen, I, I don't know what motivated you to be here today or what motivates you to be here week after week, but can I call on all of us to fix our gaze if only for a moment on the crucified Christ this morning. Jesus, who really was God, who really was man, who really suffered violently in our place to redeem us from certain destruction. Fix your eyes on the God-man, Jesus. If you are not a Christian today, look to Jesus and find life in his name. If you are a Christian today, keep looking to Jesus to find life in his name. You know, if, if Eden had never come, if all there ever was was pain and turmoil and ice chips, eventually the diversion of those ice chips would have proven to be less than satisfying. 
But when faith became sight, that's what put all of that sorrow and hardship in perspective. This was hard, but I have this beautiful child now. As we all wait for Jesus to make all things right, all things new, let's fill our heavy hearts with heavy doses of Jesus. On that day, we will all agree that for those of us in Jesus, our brief pain has surely yielded to pure joy. At the end of our days, we'll all say, that was so hard, but I got Jesus. How's your ballast? Is it fuller than when we started this letter? I hope so. Trust Jesus, church, and keep trusting, because to know Jesus is to know life. But know Jesus, know life. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word that convicts us week after week after week and forms us more into the image of your Son. I pray that you would just you'd help us know that when we sin, there is life in your name, that there is forgiveness. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to give us life again. I pray that we would repent and keep repenting. Jesus, thank you that you live perfectly in our place. Amen.